Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Hey, this is Adam from the CRE Podcast. The following episode was recorded back in uh, December 2021 at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. We're now releasing it a few months down the road. We had tech issues along the way, but we did manage to resolve them. That's a good thing because the content is great. The real focus on you know, leadership and investment strategy. So I don't know that the little time lapse here is going to hurt the quality too much. We really enjoyed recording this episode and I hope you get a lot out of it. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me as always is Adam Plodic. Another exciting episode. This is sitting here live at the Toronto Real Estate Forum, doing the interviews in person for the first time since Real Capital in 2019. I don't know, a couple of years ago, February, whatever, February whatever COVID happened. I don't know. <laughs> also excited because looking forward to this conversation with our guest, a gentleman by the name of Rob Coomer, who is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Kingset Capital. Rob, thanks for coming on. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to be here. It feels good. I mean, did you say it's exciting because it's me here or it's exciting because we're doing it live? A little bit of both. Okay. Well, it's great to be here. Even if it feels wasn't good. you, it'd still be exciting, but because it's you, it's also exciting. I mean, I'm amazed that I wasn't even aware of this podcast before I was invited on. And now I'm told there's like thousands of people listening to it from time to time. So now all of a sudden I'm all nervous, but I'm more than happy to be here and I'm flattered to have been included. So thank you. We like to start off each episode with kind of a similar path in that what was your route to where you are now? And you can start the story wherever you want, whether it's came out of the womb and I knew it was real estate for me or I was released from prison at the age of 30 and I didn't know what to do. So you tell us, you know, where did real estate enter into your life to get you where you are today? It was actually sort of a very specific moment in time. I was in business school. I went to a job fair type event. It was Ontario teachers. They were putting on a seminar at Ivy Business School. Part of the seminar was explaining the various parts of the business. Obviously, they have a private equity part and they've got all their various parts of their business. But one part was real estate and they flipped real estate up on the board. Until that point, I'd never really considered real estate, but it sort of flipped up and I said, you know what? That sort of sounds like something I'd want to do. And it really wasn't more than that. It was just sort of that. And from that point forward, I went out looking for a job and I called teachers first, didn't get a job there. So I ended up, my first real estate job was with a brokerage shop, an office leasing brokerage shop here in Toronto. It's no longer around. Which one? It was Tarot Realty. So run by John Tarot, who's a terrific guy out in Alberta. And at the time, he had an office leasing business and an office here in Toronto. So I joined that team for the summer of 1998. I had a really brutal job there. So my job at Tarot, it was titled research analyst. But what it was, back in those days, we had faxes. And so all the other brokerage companies in the city would fax through flyers of the office space that they had available in the city of Toronto, right? So if you were a listing agent and you had 10,000 square feet at First Canadian Place available for lease, you'd fax through a flyer to all the other brokerage shops in the city and say, okay, I got 10,000 square feet at First Canadian Place asking $22 a square foot, cam and tax is this and so on and so on and so forth. My job was to take the faxes off the machine, plug in all the information into this database manually, keep that up to date so that all the brokers in the office had access to everything that was available. So if they had a customer come in and say, I'd like to lease 10,000 square feet downtown between these streets in this area, the broker could go to the database and bring up all the available listings. So that was my job. Problem with it was, was that the faxes came through quite quickly. So they were coming through probably four or five faxes a minute, but it took me about three minutes to plug in the information. 
So at the end of the day, the stack of faxes was bigger than it was when I got there in the morning. Did they have a shredding machine? <laughs> they, you know, over the course of the summer, the stack of faxes just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was in a room with no windows surrounded by file cabinets and they weren't paying me very much money. So I just sort of said, you know what, this whole office leasing thing's not for me. So I never went back to that. I came out of business school in the spring of 99, and I went to go work for a shopping center development company called Center Fund Development Group, which is now First Capital or part of First Capital. And that was great. Did that for two years. Then I went to a small little company, you probably never heard of it, called Rio Can. You know, obviously I had a great run at Rio Can for four years from 2000 to 2004, again, on the investment side. Then Jonathan started and you were gone? Well, it was a good bunch of years. This was before Gitlin. He actually backfilled my role. So when I left in 04, he came in and backfilled my role. And of course, I left because I didn't think there was any upward of mobility in that role. So I sort of took <laughs> off. And then Sorry, here we are, man. right? Gillen's now president and CEO of the largest street in the country. So you know that shows you the kind of judgment and foresight that I have. But it was a good run. Great four years. Learned a lot. Treated me well. Great experience. In 2004, I went out looking for a job. I really wanted to go beyond retail, outside of the retail asset class. And I wanted to get something a little more entrepreneurial, a little smaller. And so I went out looking for a job and that's where I came across Kingset. And I met with John and there was a gentleman there by the name of Peter Agar at the time who was running the investment side of the business. He hired me and uh, 17 years later, here we are. How big was Kingset at the time? Just to put context into what you were jumping into. So it was pretty small. There were only about eight people there. It was a very small team, eight people. That's including admin staff and that's including everybody. Today, you know, we're 130 people three offices, multiple funds. We've raised $13 billion of equity. At the time, we had raised one fund. It was $220 million of equity, so about a $500 million acquisition program. It was not a startup because John and Peter and Stu, the three gentlemen that founded the business, had great track records and great brand. And obviously, John's history speaks for itself. So it wasn't a startup, but it was certainly an entrepreneurial environment, much more so than from where I was coming at Reacan. So that was really what I was looking for. It's been a phenomenal run. What did you start doing when you were hired? I was an acquisitions analyst. So there you go. I was plugging in the models and reading leases and looking through building condition reports and environmental phase one reports and doing all that stuff. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, but they were doing interesting things. And the private equity model back in 2004 in Canada was really quite in its infancy. Today, there's private equity real estate businesses right across the country of all varying shapes and sizes. And of course, we have global private equity real estate businesses in the Canadian marketplace. Back then, that didn't exist. So Kingset was really, called King Street Capital Partners at the time, was really pioneering that business in Canada. And just to put it in perspective, at that time when Kingset raised its first fund, as I said, it was $220 million. That was the largest private equity fund ever raised in Canada for real estate. When we raised our second fund was, I think, $350 million. That was then the largest one. Today, our seventh growth fund was a billion and a half of equity. And of course, there are lots of other funds with lots and lots of capital. So the scale, the complexity, the breadth of the private equity real estate business in this country has been on an exponential growth path for 20 years. And clearly there's still a lot of runway to go. Back then, and we'll get into today, but back then, what was the investment thesis? You had this new fund and you had to deploy it to start delivering on your returns. Well, were you just kind of whatever you could get your hands on? Or was it a real focused thesis? It was very focused. So the firm was started in 2002. So I came in just under two years into the program. But the program when Kingset started was very specific in that they were looking for, the original thesis was buying B office buildings in A markets. That was the thesis. So it was, you know, B class buildings in the downtown markets of Toronto, Montreal, Edmonton, Ottawa, 
Calgary and Vancouver. And that was really John's comfort zone. That was his background at Oxford. That was in his DNA. And so that's what the fund set out to do. Now, it did that for a little while. Ultimately, we expanded it a little bit and we started buying right around that time. Retail was really sort of starting to evolve, in particular in the enclosed mall space. That was a time where Walmart was now expanding and you had all the big box stores expanding. There's a lot of stuff going on in retail at the time, in the early 2000s. And so we expanded the thesis to go to A malls in B markets. So we were doing B office in A markets and A malls in B markets. So secondary markets, we bought Shakutami, Plaster Royaume and Shakutami, Lansdowne Place in Peterborough and so on. So there were a few of those transactions and that was basically the genesis of the first fund and that was that. More recently, you've been into the department sector. What's the AB structure there that you're contemplating? Well, I mean, as time has gone on, we find ourselves now in 2021, the business, Kingset's business is much more complex, sophisticated, way broader than it's ever been. And now we've started, there's multiple fund streams all doing different things. What we've really tried to do over the years is conceive new funds that are placed at different points of the risk return matrix. So if you picture a matrix with risk up one side and return down the other side, what we've tried to do is create a bunch of different funds that cover that whole matrix. And so what that allows us to do is as opportunities, as investment opportunities come in through the door, we can evaluate those opportunities. Really forget the fund that they go in. Forget about what pool of capital we're going to allocate to that particular opportunity. We can look at the opportunity and say, what are the risks? What are the opportunities? What are the returns? What do we think can go right? What do we think can go wrong? And, and evaluate it against the backdrop of the overarching question is really, do we feel that the projected returns compensate us properly for the risk we'd be taking on by making the investment? We start with that overarching question. Do the returns justify the risk? The objective is, can we generate two times return for one times risk? So sort of boil it down. So we start with the overarching question, are we being compensated for the risk? If we answer that question and if we can say that the answer to that question is yes, and therefore we like the investment, we want to make the investment, then we pick where in our world it goes. And so the risk is everything from what's the market risk, what's this deal structure risk. So there's ways to structure deals so that you have less risk. You know, you could do pref equity, you could do a debt structure, you can do a combination of that, you could do common equity. There's all different ways to slice and dice a deal so that you can reduce risk. But then there's market risk. Where are the lease rates going? Where is the supply and demand curve going? Then it's the location risk. Do you feel good about Toronto? Do you feel good about Ottawa? Do you feel good about Calgary? You start to ask yourself all those questions. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if your evaluation is that the deal's a good deal, I mean, that's really what we're talking about, is the deal a good deal? Then in our context, you can decide where in our world does it fit best? And so that could be in some of the debt funds. It could be in some of the equity funds. And we've got equity funds that do different kinds of things. Or it could be a combination of the two. And the beauty of having the King Set platform is that we have all of these different funds doing all these different things that are able to participate with one another in the same deal. Somebody comes into the office with an opportunity and they, for example, think they're looking for equity. I'm looking for an equity partner. Well, you talk to the person and you sort of get a feel for what they do, what they've done, what the project is. Do they have bookkeeping and reporting? And like, do they really want an equity partner or are they really just looking for capital? In which case, they might just be looking for a lender. And sometimes when you talk through those sorts of things with counterparties, you make them aware through conversation, they become aware that maybe what they walked in thinking they wanted isn't really what they wanted or vice versa. So the breadth of the Kingset platform has been a key differentiator for us and a key competitive advantage. And it's allowed us to do a whole bunch of things. 
I've heard other people in your position or that have different funds where they have risk or they have a challenge or they have internal policy where they cannot commingle for certain reasons. I think part of it is if I've got one fund where I'm promising an 8% return and one fund where it's a 6%, there's a conflict there that you're putting them into the same investment. Why bother? Can you just kind of talk through how you get around that and why it makes sense to you? So to the extent different funds participate in the same deal, there'd be something distinguishing one fund's investment from another fund's investment. To, again, it goes back to you have to compensate the entity for the risk they're taking on. You're talking about kind of a subordination to a certain could, it degree? Could, it could be subordination. It could be you're splitting up assets. You know, we'll go back to your question on apartments. We privatized the Northview apartment REIT during COVID. We closed on that in November of 2020. And that was 25,000 suites in hundreds of buildings across the country. And what we did was we split up the portfolio based on risk. So there's certain buildings where we felt there was maybe a little more risk, but also with that, more opportunity to create value, more value. And that bucket of assets went into our growth fund, which is effectively our opportunity fund strategy. There was a group of assets, about a billion dollars of the five billion, about a billion dollars of assets that were lower risk due to the conditions of the buildings, the locations, the markets, you know, all those sorts of things. And that bucket of assets went into our core fund. So lower return, they paid more per unit, lower cap rate, et cetera, et cetera. So lower return on that bucket of assets, but a lower risk profile. The more of what I call value add bucket went into our growth fund strategy, higher risk, but higher return. Then there was, you know, a third bucket that went into effectively a publicly traded entity. But that's an example of multiple funds working together to participate in the same transaction, same opportunity, but really on quite distinctly different metrics. Well, satisfying the investors at the back end of it, as well as, of course, you know, making the purchase make sense. So on the topic then of appropriate risk, is there areas of the market, and this could be by geography, asset class, anything really you put your mind to, that is not getting the correct return? Where do you think that the risk-reward ratio has gone out of whack? It's a great question. And that's sort of what we wake up thinking about every day. And so... Tough question to answer. He just doesn't want to tell us. Is what no. Can't, can't. no, look. This is a public I, forum. Turn here. the recorder off. Hey, there's no one listening anyway. We're not kidding ourselves. I think there are opportunities, first of all, in every asset class. So every property's got an opportunity. I mean, anyone who says, well, that building's got no opportunity. I mean, everything is fully baked. Someone probably hasn't looked at it carefully enough. So let's start there. Okay, Everything's got an opportunity. You know, there are certainly asset classes and assets that fall in and out of favor. I mean, today, you know, I'm not telling anyone anything they don't know. You can go buy bomber industrial buildings, you know, distribution warehouses, and you'd pay a very tight cap rate. Now, someone might tell you that's overpriced because the going in yield just doesn't compensate you for what could go wrong. Other groups will tell you, actually, the rent's going to grow and there's a supply problem and everyone's shopping online. So these distribution warehouses are going to be in more demand tomorrow than they are today. You'll hear all those arguments. And that's what makes the market, right? I mean, that's what compels someone to sell the building at a three cap and someone else to buy the building at a three cap because you have an opposing view as to what the risk reward balance is. That's what ultimately makes the market. Where are opportunities today? I think there's opportunities in industrial. I think there's opportunities in retail. I think retail is getting painted with a pretty brutal brush today. And I think it's unfair. I think that's probably where the biggest opportunities are in particular on the enclosed mall space. I think there's certainly opportunity on the residential side of things. Office, I think there's opportunity in office only because through this whole COVID pandemic, it's again being looked at through such a dark lens that my instincts are that there's probably more upside there than downside. So there's lots of opportunity everywhere you look. The question is, are you willing to tolerate the risk 
for what you think the opportunity might be. And that's, again, ultimately, that's what makes the market. What's the disposition strategy while you're going through this process? I'm thinking through different investment types. You know, your life insurance companies, it's a long term and you're trying to match your obligations. There's a lot of patient capital out there where it's really long term hold. We just talked to Ugo Bizarri from Hazelview and it's very much, I'm buying to generate long term cash flow. How do you guys kind of approach that? Is it just more of a pragmatic approach or is there kind of a general thesis to it? So it's really divided up by fund strategy. So if we look at our opportunity fund strategy, those are closed end funds. And that's about what I'll call event investing. So you buy a building and there is an event. You either lease the vacancy or you reposition the building or you zone the site or you build the building. You go in, there's a strategy. There's an execution component. There's an execution component that you got to get that done, whatever the that is. Okay. Once you get that done, you sell it. And I don't time. We don't market time because none of us are smart enough to market time. So we buy it, we execute it, and we get out. And our experience has been that most of the time we sell too early because the next guy makes money. But that's okay. Like, we're not too fussed. You made money too. We make money. You know, the next guy makes money. That all works totally fine. But that's that fund. Okay. So it goes in, executes, and gets out. And the average investment time period, the average hold period for an investment in our opportunity fund is around three years. So pretty short. We always underwrite four or five years, but we normally get things done quicker. So we hold assets somewhere between 28 and 36 months. And that's what drives really strong returns, right? Because we always say time on the field, like time on the field is risk. It's cost of capital risk. It's market risk. Something can always go wrong. Execution risk. Execution risk for sure. So you get in, you execute, and you get out. And that's been a great strategy for that business. Our core business is a lot different. Our core business is we're building a portfolio over time that would probably be closer to what Ugo was describing, where we're buying what we call lifers. So these are assets that we intend to hold in perpetuity. In theory, you're holding them forever. So these are the Scotia plazas of the world, the Bayshore malls of the world. You know, there's a whole apartment portfolio there, Atrium on Bay, 700 University, Tubular West. I mean, these are institutional quality income producing assets that are, in our view, these aren't assets that really you turn around and sell very often. So the disposition strategy in that business is a little different because you're always reevaluating the portfolio, you're reevaluating your business, and you're trying to identify those assets that don't necessarily fit what is at that point the long-term strategy of the fund. Because the long-term strategy of the fund changes over time, right? Depending on market dynamics and economics and all those sorts of things. And we're constantly reevaluating that. So from time to time, we look at the portfolio and we identify some things that perhaps we want less exposure to or some markets that we want to cut back on or some things that we want to get done and we need some capital to recycle into those things. And we'll identify those assets that don't quite necessarily fit the long-term strategy of that business and we'll sell those assets. So for example, when COVID hit, we decided that we wanted to shed some waiting to land. We had a large land holding in that fund because we were planning on developing, we had a whole multi-res development strategy. Well, COVID hits, we got all this land and we also happened to be buying the Northview portfolio, right? So there's a billion dollars of rental res coming into the business. It wasn't there the year before. Like it hadn't been identified the year before. So all of a sudden we didn't need the development land to build the res. It was COVID and the income fund had a tough year in 2020, right? Because there were a lot of things going on. And so just shed land, which obviously is a drag on income, isn't unhelpful. So we identified a number of assets in the land category that we were going to sell. And we went through a disposition program through 2020. And the first part of 2021, we went through a $400 million disposition program, which comprised mostly of land, some retail, and of course, counterbalanced by 
the acquisition of the Northview portfolio. So it gives you an example of how you can constantly evolving, evolve and reconstitute the portfolios to fit again what the then current long-term strategy of the business is. So it's really a short-term strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we always say we're unencumbered with a strategy, right? So it lets you do whatever you want. But in all seriousness, I mean, these are big issues that we reflect on internally. We reflect on with our board. We've got great advisory boards in all of our businesses that really help us sort of shape how these businesses act and what they do over the course of time. In the early days, our mass debt business had a huge exposure to residential condos. So like the lion's share of the business was residential condos. And then when we went in through the global financial crisis and we got nervous about the condo business in Toronto in particular, we started pairing back our exposure to residential condos just because we felt nervous about that. So we started pairing that back, doing more income producing assets, more low rise housing development, land servicing, construction, and so on. Today, we're back in the condo business. So like you're constantly trying to reevaluate and rejig your portfolio to match what the long-term strategy is. And that's what we get paid to do. So hopefully, you know, we do a good job. Let's talk about today. I mean, it's December 2021 for anybody that listens to this further down the line. We're in an inflection point. The world is changing for the better, obviously coming out of the most recent crisis. What do you think is the adequate reweighting, the right strategy to capitalize for what you think is going to happen in 2022? Well, I think our activity is going to reflect what we already have in the barn and then how we're going to want to change things for our own strategy. And I think for those who are listening, they'll have to evaluate against their own backdrop. So I'm not going to discuss necessarily what the weighting should be. You know, if we take a step, even one step removed from that question and just ask yourself, generally, do you want to play offense today or do you want to play defense today? And if we could just rewind the clock and position ourselves in early 2020 or mid 2020 or in the pandemic at some point, I think we were playing defense. For a lot of it, we were playing defense because, you know, you you were uncertain about how the world was unfolding. And I think we all knew that over time this would get better. And, you know, everyone knew the vaccines were coming. We knew ultimately things were going to be okay. But the timing of it, the direction, how volatile it was going to be, I think there was a lot of uncertainty in the world. So we played defense. It goes back to the disposition program that we talked about a moment ago. Today, we view the world in a much different light. So today we look at it and we say, there's clearly strong economic growth going on. There's clearly lots of liquidity in the system, both at the retail level and at the corporate level. Corporate earnings are strong. Interest rates are low. And there's an abundance of capital seeking assets going into what we think is going to be an inflationary environment. And of course, real estate is an amazing hedge for inflation. So we're pretty bullish on where the real estate market is going. Having said that, we're today playing offense. We've got some big goals for 2022. We had some big goals for the second half of 2021, and we pretty much exceeded all of our targets. And going into 2022, we got lots of capital. We're looking for opportunities in all the asset classes. We're looking for joint ventures, you know, new relationships. And we're going to play a lot of offense going into the next year. And here's Rob's cell phone number. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, you can find me on the web. You don't need yeah. my cell phone. Is yeah. there such thing as too much capital in a Canadian marketplace? For his competitors, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like it's hard. We're sitting in a building you own that you spent a lot of money on. And so getting money out in big chunks is obviously... Well, well for context, we're in the Fairmont Royal yeah. Hotel. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. a beautiful yeah. hotel. You got to yeah. come yeah. check yeah. it out. And the F&B here is amazing. I, I was going to ask Rob what his favorite building is, but I'm pretty sure I'd know the answer. <laughs> I got a few. I got a few. <laughs> but at some point, because there's this wall of capital everybody's talking about, you could probably raise a couple more billion if you wanted to, but is that just too much? Yeah. Like, is there a level that you kind of go, okay, that's enough? Yeah, like, for sure there is. We can raise all the capital we want. There's a lot of businesses out there who can raise a lot of capital. But yeah, for sure, we have access to what I would call limitless capital. I mean, it's not limitless, but it's effectively limitless. Our job is to 
raise capital, but also put that capital to work thoughtfully. And that all comes back to our structure, our core values, how we're aligned with our employees and our stakeholders. We're not looking to place capital recklessly because frankly, we get compensated by participating in profit. So we have no interest in investing money unless we think we can make a profit. And I'll also say that King Set principles and employees, like the business itself internally, we own about 10% of all of our funds. So we're heavily, heavily aligned with our stakeholders. And the last thing I want to do is make any investment where we think we're not going to make a lot of money. So we're very cautious, we're focused on risk, and we're very much aligned with our stakeholders, which then drives our investment strategy. Would you say then you're basically balanced from an equity perspective now, as far as you've got as much as you can get out the door? For the moment, you know, we're well capitalized. I guess it depends on what comes down the road yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, there could yeah. be a deal on your desk That's right. Northview rolls yeah. in. That's right. Yeah. That's right. We've got lots of capital in all of our strategies. As I said, we're playing offense and we're constantly raising money in the various parts of our business over time. So we're always in some form of money raising mode. We got lots of appetite. And so we'll keep going. All right, we've got a few minutes left here, Rob. I want to ask you about your position as leader. You talked to a lot of people that have investment theses, but you, of course, are running a very large multi-headed company into a lot of areas of real estate. What, for you, is the toughest part about sharing your vision with the company or imparting what you want, keeping so many different facets of real estate all aligned for an overarching vision you have for the company? When I think about leadership, I think more about making sure that our team understands what the core set of values is for the business. To me, like that's where it starts. It's creating a culture internally and making sure that our employees understand the way we do business. And we have a saying at Kingset that the right thing to do is always the right thing to do. And really we need people to be on board with always doing the right thing. And so we treat, whether it's our employees, our lenders, our tenants, our investors, our colleagues, It's all about our core set of values. And ultimately, that's what's going to drive the business forward. The technical work and the strategy and whether you're buying or you're selling or you're lending or you're borrowing, we've got experts that do that. You know, Scott Coates, for example, runs our lending business. He's an expert lender. I got Colin Berlick who runs the equity investment side of the business. He's an expert at buying and selling real estate. We got Bill Logar who runs our asset management platform, so runs all of the assets. Him and his team will oversee all of the leasing and the development and the construction and the property management, all that sort of stuff. Obviously, the finance and admin side of our business with property accountants and our CFO, and we got a development team. You know, like everyone has their role, and we've got great people doing amazing things, and they're all experts in what it is they're doing. So I feel really good about all that. Our job as the leadership team, and when I say the leadership team, I mean me and John and Anna and Bill and Scott Fisher, our CFO and so on. Our job is to create the culture and the core set of values and make sure that that permeates itself through the whole organization, top to bottom. Because it's not necessarily what people are doing. I know people have the technical skill to get the work done. More importantly, it's how they're doing it. How are they conducting themselves? How are they treating their counterparties? How are they dealing with their colleagues? That is the key differentiator and ultimately will be the key to our long-term sustainable success. And so that's where we tend to spend most of our time. Never met a person at Kings that I didn't like. I'll say that. (laughs) And I know a lot of them. That's very kind. I know a lot of them. And you know what? I mean, that's very nice. It's very kind. But that's really important to me. I always say to people when we're starting a new business relationship, when we're doing a joint venture, we'll talk about the deal and we'll talk about the structure. You know, you get mired in all those discussions. But I always say to my counterparty, Our job is to be the best partner you have. 
because I know that if I can do that, if I can be successful in being the best partner you have, then the next deal comes to me. You know, we're in the deal business. I mean, ultimately that's the lifeblood. That's the currency of Kingset, right? We got to find investment opportunities. So the only way to do that is to make sure the brokers are happy and the lawyers are happy and the lenders are happy and the joint venture partners are happy and all your service providers are happy because as I said, everyone can execute. Everyone's got the skill. We have to be a business that everyone wants to deal with. And to do that, you have to have a core set of values that keeps you grounded, keeps you authentic, and keeps you focused on the prize. And if we can do that right, if we can just do all of that right, there's no stopping us as far as I'm concerned. So is that leadership by example? How do you trickle it down? This is the impossible question to answer, really, right? It's this not. Is, you know what? It's how not. do you get that person that you just hired that's an administrator to understand and appreciate this is what they have to do and how they have to behave? So it's everything from how I treat people. You know, it starts with John. John's our CEO. It starts and has always started with John. And it goes down through the organization. It's like osmosis. You don't know it's seeping in, but it is. And it just finds its way through the organizational structure and how you talk to people on the telephone, what you say in an email, what your policies are. Do you have policies that allow people to take enough time off? Do you have policies that allow men and women to take parental leave? Do you have policies that make sure your employees are treated with respect? You can tell stories about your experiences through your career. It's about throwing a Christmas party for your organization and making sure people are rewarded at the end of the year. It's making sure obviously people are fairly compensated. It's about making sure people are getting interesting work. It's all of those things put together. But if you can do all of that, then your people will in turn treat other people with respect. So it really starts with the leadership team and it filters its way. And you know what, when it happens and the King sets, it's happened. Okay. Cause our people are amazing and the culture there is amazing. But when it happens, it's magical. It's magical. It's an amazing thing to watch. And thank God, thank God, we're back in the office. Because when you're not in the office, I'll tell you this, when you're not in the office, it's impossible. I mean, you can do it. You can keep people engaged and so on. We did lots of things through the pandemic. Webinars every Friday, emails from John, you know, on a regular basis, keeping people updated. Like you do all those things. But it's that je ne sais quoi, you know, it's that je ne sais quoi. You can't quite define or articulate how it gets done. But if you're in the office, it's amazing. When you're not in the office, I think personally, it's impossible. Yeah, we always talk at First National, similar, I believe anyway, similar concepts. And you spend culture throughout working from home. You've got this yeah, bucket of culture sure. and it's just slowly, it's a great way. It's slowly a, yeah. being dripped away. It's a great way to put it. You got to fill that bucket back up. The only way to do that is to be back in the office. It's a great way to put it. It's a great way to put it. So Rob, we are out of time. Great conversation about Kingset. And I hope that the person at Kingset who has the job of taking faxes in and putting them into a computer <laughs> feels the lifeblood of the company fully in them. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Thank you guys. I really appreciate being included in this. This was great. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.